Today we're going to do an unusual lesson. We're going to take a break from our Galatians study. And actually kind of fits right in with our Galatians study because if you remember from Galatians, Paul's dealing with a church that is being affected by so-called Christians who are saying that in order for them to be accepted by God, they had to do certain things. Now the reality is that that is true even today. Even today, in our, even in our kind of church, even for you, you can be affected by others who call themselves Christians or maybe who are Christians who say to you that your spirituality, your acceptance with God is going to be based upon you doing certain things. And one of the biggest issues, especially in our circle of churches, is which Bible you use. And so what I, w- I decided to do is I was going to take a break and from our study this week. We'll get back into it next week. And, and talk to you about the English Bible and getting a grasp on the English Bible. Now, let me just say to you, this is going to be a brief lesson. This lesson could actually take a whole month. Because there's, there, are, there are a lot of technical things that I thought would bore you that I'm going to leave out. A lot of things that really, like the whole textual thing and, and all of that, that we're just going to briefly touch on that we're not going to go into extensively. Uh, if you are interested in the topic, I'm going to recommend a book to you, but I'm going to be honest with you, it's, it's a good book, but it's very technical. And it's called The King James Version Debate, A Plea for Realism. It's by D.A. Carson, who is a well-known scholar, conservative evangelical scholar, and it's a great book for you to read. And you can get it on Amazon. You probably can find it pretty cheap on Amazon. You might even find it for a penny. It's a good book. It's still in print. And uh, so I just want to make mention of that to you. I first read the book 20 years ago, so it's still in print now, because the issue is still very relevant today. So, okay, if we're going to talk about the Bible, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about the nature of the Bibles. To understand English translation and how we got our English translation, you need to understand something about the nature of the Bible. The first thing I want you to see is, is that the Bible is a collection of 66 books written in three languages. It's a collection of 66 books. See, the Bible is actually a book of books. And there are 66 different books, and they're written in three different languages. Now, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew and Aramaic. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew and Aramaic. So, Most of it is written in Hebrew, but there are certain portions, so for instance, like in Daniel, where it is written in Aramaic, which was the language even in Jesus' time. The New Testament was written in Koine, the word is Koine Greek. Now let me explain to you what Koine Greek is. Koine Greek was the Greek language that the average individual spoke at that time. It's not classical Greek. For instance, classical Greek is what the more sophisticated and the more educated people spoke. It's what they wrote in. When you talk about Koine Greek, you're talking about everyday language. So for instance, if Paul was writing in the English language of west of our western central Pennsylvania area here, he would use words like this in his writing, yuns. You would see that in his writing. He's using the everyday language when he's writing. When they're writing in the New Testament, they're using the everyday language of the people. So it's not a book written for who? Scholars. 
It's a book, books written for everyday people. So you understand, it's written in the language of the common people at the time. All right, now that's a very important point I want you to understand, is that when we're talking about the, the Scripture, it was written for who, folks? For every, everybody, everyday people, so that they could read it, and it was written in whose language? Everyday language. Now, that's an important point. You've got to hold that in the back of your mind, because that's going to help us understand later the English Bible and the English translations that exist. There is no punctuation in these documents. When you look at the original documents, and let me first of all say, the original documents don't exist anymore. We have replications of the original documents. We have documents that were written later. But when you understand Greek, you have to understand, like for instance, in the Greek New Testament, there were no commas, no periods, no explanation points. It was just, one, it was just written. That's, that was the way their language was. So it just, you talk about run-on sentences. One sentence leading into another. So the punctuation and stuff was added in later in our English translations. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, for instance, let me give you an example. I remember I had a discussion with a lady, and she was so upset with the NIV because she said the King James was the only Bible to read, the NIV was not, because in Isaiah, in the passage where, I think it's Isaiah 7, where it says, Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, the NIV had a comma in between wonderful counselor. And the King James didn't. And that goes to show you that the NIV is wrong because the King James had a comma, um, excuse me, the King James didn't have a comma and the NIV did, so therefore it's wrong. Well, the problem with that is, is that when you look at the original Greek manuscripts, there are no commas. It's a translation decision. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a translation decision. So when you understand right off the bat, there's no punctuation in these. Now, the Bible's chapter divisions, so when you look in and you see John chapter 3 or you know, Isaiah chapter 53 or Genesis chapter 6 or whatever, the chapter divisions were created in the early 1200s. So when the original books were written and original letters were written, they didn't say John 3. Do you understand what I'm saying? It didn't have a chap chapter 2. That didn't come about until the early 1200s, and that was done by a lecturer at the University of Paris. So up until 1200, when you got, a, you got the Gospel of John, it was, all one, it was all one thing. No chapter divisions in it. Does everybody understand me? Now, the current verse divisions, so when you have, okay, you go from the chapter to now where you have certain verses... Your verses that you have in your Bible weren't fully developed until 1551. So everybody understand me. So even now, where the, the the verse division, as far as what's in a verse, you know, and what isn't, what verse is this, that wasn't fully developed until 1551. Now you say, where's all this going? Well, you're going to see. I'm trying to lay a foundation for you to understand the Bible in general, the Bible that you're using now. Let's talk about the nature of Bible translation. Because here's the thing. When we're talking about documents that were written in Hebrew, were written in Aramaic, and written in Greek, you need to understand something about Bible translation. It is difficult to translate from one language to another. It isn't easy. There aren't books that say, here's the Koine Greek to, to, to this. This is what you do. Those were developed later. They weren't around when people first translated into languages. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's difficult. 
So for instance, like when I talk to my grandmother, who's from Germany, or my aunt, I actually have a difficult, it, wasn't, it was easier for me when I was younger, because I learned German right when I was born. I learned it from the time, up until the time we left there. It was easier for me to talk to her back then than it is now, because I find it hard to find words in German to communicate what I want to say in English. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, there are also idioms. Does everybody understand what an idiom is? Let me explain to you what an idiom is. That is a saying that you say in your culture and then try to say it in another culture and it loses its meaning. So, for instance, how many of you have heard the saying is, I didn't just fall off the apple cart? How many of you have heard that? How many of you have used that? I remember speaking in a foreign country and saying that, and they didn't have any clue what I was talking about. You want to know why? Because in Haiti, they don't have apple trees. Now, they got a cart. Do you see what I'm saying? So, in the Greek language, in your New Testament, there are, and even in the Old Testament, there are idioms that were for their culture that meant something to them, but then you try to translate that into the English, and it, you, you understand it's like it loses its meaning. You understand? So translation is difficult, first of all. You've got to understand that. First of all, the next thing I want you to see is, is translators desire good translations. So right now there are probably, oh, I, I, at the minimum, 27 different English translations. At the minimum. I don't know of any one of them who translated their, their scripture, the, the Bible, that were doing it for a wrong reason. Their whole reason, every one of them was, is they wanted to have a good translation in the English for people to read today because they want people to have the Bible. There's nothing wrong here. It's not like some satanic plot to confuse everybody. If there's a satanic plot, I'll tell you what it is later. The issue is, is people want to have good translations of what the Scripture says. All right? Now, the other thing is, is translators follow accepted principles of translation. Even down to, when you see, a, like, okay, when you look at the NIV or you look at the NASV or the New King James or the King James, they all follow the same pattern of translation. So they'll break it up into groups of scholars. One group of scholars will take one portion and another group of scholars will take another portion and another group of scholars will take another portion and they'll translate it. And then they come together with their translations, and then they'll decide as a group whether or not that is a good translation of those portions. So, I mean, and this is, this is the norm followed by all translation committees. There's a standard that's set up for how to do it. So when we talk about translations, you have to understand they're trying to find a good translation of that text. It's difficult to find a translation from one language to another, and they follow set principles. Okay, so that brings us now to the history of the English Bible. All right, let me just ask you real quick before we get into the history, let me just start here. How many of you, which, what do you think was the very first English Bible? Don't look at your sheet. Before you came in here today, what did you think was the very first English Bible? Okay, someone said the King James. King James. How many of you thought it was the King James? How many of you thought maybe there was something before the King James? Okay, some of you thought maybe... How many of you said, I don't know? How many of you say, I don't care? Okay, all right. Some of you don't care. And that's okay if you don't care. But the fact of the matter is, there is a history here. 
And I'm going to dispel some myths as we go through the history. So let's work through the history real quick here. And then we're going to come up to the history, up to the King James, and then I'm going to tell you about the King James. All right, first of all, to understand the, the history of the English Bible, you need to, we need to go back further than when the first English translation was written. First of all, Jerome, a church father by the name of Jerome, he lived from 342 to 420, translated the Bible into everyday Latin. So first of all, when he wrote, when he made a translation, he was told to make a translation of the Bible, which was the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic things. He made it in the everyday language, again, of the people at that time in the Roman Empire, and what did they speak? Latin. So Jerome wrote it in the everyday language, Latin. The, Jerome's translation was called the Vulgate. How many of you have heard of the Vulgate? Okay, you should. It's the, the Latin Bible. It's the Catholic Bible. So he wrote the Vulgate. And he was doing what others have tried to do, is to communicate those scriptures in the everyday language of the people. Now this is very important, because why? Now we're going to get into the English translation. There is a myth out there that said that the Catholic Church did not want the Bible translated into English. It's a myth. Because the fact of the matter is, we'll go all the way back to the 900s. King Alfred the Great in 901, this is the King of England at the time, King Alfred the Great began a tra an English translation of the Psalms. So he decided he wanted to have the Psalms in English. And so he had them translated from the Vulgate into the English dialect of the time. Alright? Now, let's go on. In the 10th century, which is the very next century, the Gospels were translated into the various regional dialects of England. So you understand that the Catholic Church is the church at the time. There's only one church. They're translating the Gospels into the various dialects of the time. Now, we have various dialects here in the U.S., don't we? We have the Western Central PA dialect. Then you go down to where I am from in South Carolina and you got the dialect down there, right? You see what I'm saying? We have various dialects here too. I'll never forget it. When I took a trip with Lori to visit my relatives in Germany, we got lost getting to the airport in Frankfurt. And my grandmother says to me, pull over and ask that lady for directions, which is a hard thing for me to do anyhow, Ask Lori. I don't like to ask for directions. But, you know, we are in Germany, so I better ask directions. So I roll down the window. My grandmother talks to this lady out there and asks for directions to the airport. And so the lady tells her the answer. And then my grandmother looks at me and says, Did you get that? And I said, I didn't understand a thing she said. Because I learned a German from northern Germany in Berlin and the Berliner dialect. That woman was from... Frankfurt, and she was speaking a Hessian dialect. I couldn't understand her Hessian German. You understand? Now, my grandmother did, but I didn't. Why? Because there are different dialects. But what you're going to see is, is even back then, notice something, they're translating the Gospels, not just in one dialect, but in various dialects. Why? Because they want people to have what? The Scripture. You understand? All right, let's go on. Now, about 1300s, this is really where the whole foundation of the English Bible comes to. So we have various books that are being translated, the Gospels, we have the Psalms. But the first desire to translate the whole Scripture really happened in the 13, around 13-something 13 
Uh, let me see here. When was Wycliffe? 13, well, at the end of the 1300s, 1381, there was a gentleman by the name of John Wycliffe, and he attempted the first translation of the complete Bible into English. Now, here's one thing I want you to understand about John Wycliffe. He was a reformer, one of the preludes to the Re Reformation. So he, be he was a priest. He was a Catholic priest. He became very critical of the established church, so he was removed from his post in Oxford at Oxford University. He had a post at Oxford University, and he withdrew to a church in Lutterford. He then surrounded himself with disciples who began to translate the Bible into English of that day. There is no evidence that he took part in the actual translation of the work. Now, I want you to understand something. Wycliffe's Bible was rejected by the church not because it was an English translation. It was rejected because it was his Bible. It was Wycliffe's Bible, and it was distributed by the Lawlers, which were declared to be a heretical group. And it was used to attack the teachings and the practices of the church at that time. So the reason why they rejected it is because who was the one distributing it? Wycliffe. So, in fact, listen, here's what happened. The church at that time was so concerned about the effect of Bible reading upon the uneducated people of the day. That's really what the issue was. It was a control issue. They were really concerned. They thought it was best left for the educated clergy to read the Bible. That's what the issue was. So here's what happened. When Wycliffe and his group translated the Bible, English Bible, they distributed it. The copies of his book and his Bible translations were then burned, as well as some of his followers. Some of his followers were burned. However, there are as many as 200 manuscripts surviving today. We have a, there's about 200 of Wycliffe's Bible still remaining today. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, here's the thing. When he died, Wycliffe was then declared a heretic by the church. It didn't happen while he was alive because he happened to be a friend of the king. That helps you be stay alive, doesn't it? Well, he was declared a heretic when he died, and so they dug up his body, burned it, and then spread his ashes into the River Thames. Like, that's really going to matter to you then. So, here, so what we see is that's the very first one. Now, here's the interesting thing about that first English Bible. It was translated from the Vulgate, which, of course, is the Latin Bible, and not from the Hebrew and Greek. So it was translated from the Vulgate and not from the Hebrew and Greek. All right, so the next stop on our journey of understanding the history is, is you go up to about the 1500s now, and... There's a gentleman by the name of another Catholic priest by the name of Erasmus. Now, he doesn't live in England. He's somewhere in Europe at the time. And about the 1500s, he translated, 1516, he translated his celebrated Greek New Testament. So up until that time, basically most of the, you know, there weren't very many Greek documents still around for the New Testament. Because mostly there was what? Just the Latin Vulgate. All right? because that was the language of the empire for a while. Does everybody understand me? So then what happens is, is Erasmus decides he's going to reverse it. He's going to find what the Greek translation was. So here's what he did. He looked around and searched for most of the ancient Greek manuscripts that he could find. And as he wrote his Greek New Testament, he had some problems because some of the documents that he found were, did not have verses so, for instance, when he was looking for, through his Greek manuscripts that he could find, the last six verses of Revelation were missing. 
So here's what he did. He made his own backward translation. So what he did was is he then translated the Latin back into the Greek and, and found those six verses. In fact, for centuries, some Greek New Testaments still included Erasmus's Latin to Greek translation of those verses. You understand what's going on here? So he didn't have the original document. He did have the Vulgate. So what he did was he says, if I'm going to find what the Greek says, he just translated it back. You understand what's going on here? Now, you say, why is this so important to us? Well, it was his Greek New Testament was the forerunner to the Texas Receptus, or the received text. Now let's talk about the received text for a minute. This is one of the things King James only people will tell you is that it is the received text, it is the received text from God. That is not what Texas Receptus means. It means received text, but it doesn't mean received from God. It means received from translation. You understand what I'm saying? So, you know, when somebody wants to hold on to a position and they're adamant about it, they'll sometimes twist things to make it say what it doesn't say. But so what I want you to understand is, is that as we lay a foundation for the King James, and we'll talk a little bit more about it later. As I get to it, I want you to see is that there is an issue of translation here and what documents are used. All right? So now we come to about 10 years later, and we're going to be introduced to a man by the name of William Tyndale. In 1526, William Tyndale translated Erasmus's New Testament into English. Now here's what he did. He went to, he approached the Bishop of Tunstall, Bishop Tunstall of London, and he asked for permission to translate the Bible into English. But because of the threat of Protestantism, do you understand, Protest the Reformation is happening about this time. Because of the threat of Protestantism, the bishop told Tyndall that there was no room to translate the New Testament into, in England. He didn't want to translate a Bible into England because this whole issue of splitting the church was happening, even in England at that time. All right, And so you have to understand, there's there are political things that are going on here. So what Tyndall did was, is he got sponsorship from some wealthy merchants and he left for Germany and translated the New Testament in Germany. It took him two years to do it. And he printed, had about 6,000 copies of the English New Testament printed in the town of Worms there in Germany. And he began to sell them in England in the year 1526. There's only two copies that have survived of the 6,000 that were originally printed. Now here's the reason why. They were smuggled back, these New Testaments then were smuggled back into England in barrels of flour and in bolts of cloth. So he had to smuggle them back into England because, first of all, he was told not to do it. He's a Catholic priest. Tyndall is a Catholic priest at the time. The bishop tells you not to do it. What are you supposed to do? You're not supposed to do it. So he had them smuggled back in. Now here's what happened. Bishop, the bishop then bought up most of the first edition in order to stamp out what he referred to as Tyndale's heresy, but the proceeds went on to finance future new editions. So then here's what he did. He then started his Old Testament in 1530. He started the translation of the Old Testament in 1530. The problem was is he did not live to see it go to press. Why? Because he was in what is known as the Netherlands now. A, fr a friend betrayed him. He was then captured, brought back to England, stood trial, underwent severe tortures, and ultimately he was strangled and burned at the stake. Now, 
Tyndale's translation, let me explain something to you about Tyndale's translation. Tyndale's translation introduced many new words into the English language. For instance, words such as long-suffering. That came from William Tyndale. Peacemaker came from William Tyndale. Scapegoat came from William Tyndale. He introduced those into the English language. Filthy lucre came from William Tyndale. And even the word beautiful came from William Tyndale. He introduced those into the English language from his translation of Erasmus' Greek New Testament into the English language. Now, let me just stop for a moment. He is truly the father of the English Bible. His work actually is reflected in your Bibles that you hold today. Do you realize that? So, for instance, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Because some of you thought that the first English Bible was the King James Bible. 90% of the wor his words passed into the King James Bible. Do you realize that? 90% of his words in 1526 were then used in the King James Bible. The, basically, when the, when the scholars of the King James got together, they were looking at all the English translations up to that point, plus the manuscripts, the manuscripts that they had, and they reflected that 90% of the words that he chose to translate were the ones that they then used in the King James. Isn't that interesting? That's really interesting, isn't it? Okay, here's the other thing. Now, here's the reason why Tyndale's work was rejected. It's not because they didn't want an English translation. Here's the reason why. Church authorities rejected it because it was unauthorized and not translated from the Vulgate. The issue was, is they felt, at that point, the church had felt that the only true Bible to have was what? The Vulgate. Now, doesn't that sound familiar today like some Baptists today? That there's only one true Bible. Do you understand, are you starting to see the tendency that humans have? Do you understand what I'm saying? And it's reflected. This is why we need to go through this. Okay, now, here's the thing. Here's what happened. Then in 1535... Miles Coverdale published the Coverdale Bible. There was another Bible after Tyndale's Bible. And Miles actually had worked with Tyndale a little bit on translation. But just to help you to understand, in 1534, the Church of England broke away from the Catholic Church. Here's what happened. And it wasn't even a religious reason why they broke away. King Henry VIII wanted to be divorced because his wife was not able to produce an heir. Remember Henry VIII? Remember, he had many wives. Well, after his first marriage to Catherine of Aragorn, she wasn't able to produce an heir, so he actually had a love fling going on, and he wanted to marry somebody else. Well, the Pope wouldn't allow that divorce to take place, so guess what he does? Breaks away from the Catholic Church and thus started the Church of England. And guess who becomes the head of the, of the Church of England now? The king. You understand? So guess what he's able to do now? Get a divorce. And if we know anything about Henry... He got a lot of divorces, didn't he? Do you understand? I don't think anybody argued with Henry. All right? Now, here's what happened. So, about this time in 1535, the King of England was petitioned for an English Bible. There was, okay, we need an English Bible. And so Coverdale, who once worked with Tyndale, produced the Coverdale Bible. His translation was more accepted than Tyndale's translation because it didn't include any kind of notes or or 
or prefaces which sometimes contain things that people thought were contentious and caused problems. Do you understand? Study Bibles were there from the very beginning because there were always notes helping you to understand the text. The problem was is that sometimes there was a problem with the note because maybe the note that was there to I help you understand the text reflected on something that was going on currently in their culture and the kings weren't necessarily happy about that. So when Coverdale wrote, he didn't have any notes, but he did have one thing to make it acceptable. He had a nice dedication to the king in it. So you understand the politics of what's going on here. So it contained revisions of Tyndale's work, as well as parts from the German and Latin translations. It was the first complete English Bible in England, period, the Coverdale Bible. Also in 1535, there was a gentleman by the name of John Rogers. He produced the Matthews Bible. Now you're saying, why are we going through all these translations? I want you to understand where we're coming from before we get to the King James. He produced the Matthews Bible. Now listen, the reason why it's called the Matthews Bible is, is that, again, because of politics, he didn't want to associate his name with it, so he took the name, pen name of Thomas Matthew. Do you understand why? Because when William Tyndall had his name associated with it, he was burned at the stake. So he used a pen name. Then there is the Great Bible. The Great Bible then, around the same time, was authorized by King Henry VIII. About this time, there are all these translations going on, and so King Henry VIII decides that he's going to issue an injunction banning the printing and distribution of English Bibles with any notes in them that were not authorized by the king. Now, this basically stood until the American Revolution. And one of the interesting things about the American Congress, after one of the first things it decreed, passed a bill about a law was, is that the English Bible could be printed in the U.S., and that was in 1782. Why? Because up until that time of the founding of the nation, English Bibles could only be printed at the direction of who? The king. Do you understand? So, the great Bible then, now when Henry died, his son Edward took over, and he had it, he had it then placed in churches, and they were to be placed in the front of the church open. So you we understand where that tradition comes from now, as far as having the open Bible up front, so that the common people could read the Bible. Now, the interesting thing was, it was then chained, that Bible was then chained to the table. Why? So they couldn't take it with them. They could only come and read it there. So do you understand why churches today have open Bibles in the front? It goes all the way back to King Edward's time, right after King Edward VIII, with the Great Bible. Do you understand why traditions, they're kind of hard, we don't even know why they're there, to just know there's a tradition, right? All right, let's go on now. The Geneva Bible, now this is an important, put the star by this one, because you're going to have to, we're going to talk a little bit about the Geneva Bible here in a moment, was published in 1560. Now, it was an improvement on the earlier translations. The translator, translators were able linguists, so they were able to translate those documents, but here's the problem. It contained controversial marginal notes. It contained controversial notes in it. And this became the popular Bible of the Puritans. Now, a year after it was printed, the Bishop's Bible was printed. And it was printed as a reaction to the Geneva Bible. And the reason why it was called the Bishop's Bible is because all the translators were either bishops or going to be bishops in the Church of England. 
So now that brings us to the King James, which is 1611. Okay, so here we are, 1561, 50 years later, the King James Bible. First of all, it was produced in reaction to the popular Geneva Bible. Here's what's going on. One of the things about the King James Bible, when it was translated, it had no marginal notes in it. It had no study notes or anything in it, in the Bible. The reason why is, is because King James objected to the marginal notes. He did not like the marginal notes in the Geneva Bible. So, for instance, why did he not like them? Well, in the Old Testament portion, there was a note there when King Asa's mum was executed. Israel's King Asa's mum was executed. There was a note in there that said, she deserved to be killed. Now you say, now why would that tick off the king? Well, King James' mother was a woman by the name of Mary, Queen of Scots. And she was executed by Queen Elizabeth. You understand? So he took an offense to that note. There were other notes in there that were taking slams at the monarchy. You understand what I'm saying? Because it was the popular Bible of the Puritans. And the Puritans didn't necessarily like the monarchy. So here's the other thing. So he then decides that it's time for a new translation. So he then gathers 50 scholars to take part in the translation of the Bible. Now here's an interesting you can write this down. You may not be aware of it, but the scholars were evenly divided between Catholics and Anglicans. The scholars were evenly divided between Catholics and Anglicans, or Episcopals, as we call them in our country. So I just want you to understand and because they are Anglo-Catholic, it is reflected in the text. Their Anglo-Catholic doctrine is reflected in the translation work. You may not be aware of that. One of the interesting things, and the King James was a good translation, it was the most accurate translation of the texts that were available at that time. At that time, based upon what was available as far as Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic texts as available at that time, the King James was the most accurate version at that point. Now, here's another interesting thing that you need to be aware of. It was never made the official Bible of England. In fact, one of the names for the King James is it's often called what? The authorized version. The fact of the matter is, it was never authorized. He supported the work, but he never authorized it, never made it the official Bible. In fact, there was only one official Bible. That was the one that was authorized by King Henry VIII, and it was the Great Bible. You understand? But so somehow the King James became known as the authorized version, as if that's supposed to lend to its credibility. It doesn't. What lends to its credibility is that it was a good translation of the text at that point. So here's the thing. Now, here's the one that you're going to find very interesting. Let me ask you a question. We just celebrated Thanksgiving. What version of the Bible do you think the pilgrims brought over with them? Was it the King James? Because remember, they came over in 1621. The King James was translated in 1611. Which version do you think they brought to America? How many of you say the King James? How many of you say something else? Okay, something else is right. The King James was rejected from by the pilgrims because it was, are you ready for this? too modern for their tastes. Doesn't that sound familiar? It was rejected by the pilgrims because it was too modern 
for their tastes. In fact, what they brought to America was the Geneva Bible. When the King James was published in 1611, the Geneva Bible was far more popular than any other English translation. It was the Geneva translation, not the King James, that was used by William Shakespeare. When Shakespeare quotes scripture, he's quoting the Geneva Bible. And it was the one that was used by early American Puritans in their churches. The Geneva Bible, not the King James. Isn't that interesting? Let's go on. It ultimately became the standard English version until 1880. So ultimately it became, and I think really what maybe what made it is, I think something had to do with the American Revolution. It ultimately became the English translation until 1880, and the reason why 1880 is because the, at that point, it was the Revised Standard Version came into existence. Now, here's the final note, and we're going to have to stop. And I'll finish the lesson next week. But it's important that we get to this. It was revised in 1629, 1638, 1653, 1701, 1762, and 1769. Do you realize that? The King James Version was revised six times. So if you have a King James Bible here today, do you realize that the King James Bible that you have is a 1769 revision of the 1611? Now, just real quick, why do you think they revised it? Okay, what did I heard over here? Language changed, okay, because if you put, and I'll, maybe next week I'll show you a verse from the 1611. You won't be able to read it. Language changed as well as scholarship changed. Maybe they had more documents or whatever. Do you understand? So the translation, but always, even with the King James, if you read the original preface to the King James, there was a preface. Their task was to put the Bible in the hands of everyday people so that everyday people could read it. So guess why they revised it? What changed? Language. Now, has language changed since 1769? It has. In fact, the New King James, which is the Bible that we have in our pews here, are the 1984 revision of the King James. You understand? All right, we're going to stop there. Now, here's what we're going to do next week. Next week, we're going to talk about modern translations then, modern English translations, and then we're going to talk about what the implications are. What are the implications of this whole discussion for you and I today? And then what I'm going to do after that, because we'll have a little bit of time, is I will answer your questions or take your comments. And we'll have a discussion on it. And then that'll be that lesson and we'll get back to Galatians. Everybody okay with that? Let's close our time in prayer and get ready for the morning worship service.